the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. I'm your host, Stephen Boyce, as we're going to be jumping to another episode on the 12 Apostles. Today, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Matthew, the tax collector, the gospel writer, and the church planner to Ethiopia. We're going to look at him, but before we get into that, some quick announcements. I don't want to take a lot of time on this. Facts is going to be moving after we do the series on the 12 Apostles to not just a podcast audio, but we're going back to doing live streams on Explore Christianity's YouTube channel. Now, years ago, Facts started out as a live stream and the audio on Explain International, which is the sister ministry in Asia and Malaysia area. And we did a lot of them dual. We had the audio and then we also had a video. <clears throat> we got away from that once we started Explore off of Explain International. And over time, we just didn't do the dual there. And we're actually going to go do that. There's also going to be some episodes in between uh, the ones we do on the Gospels and the writers of the Gospels, like today, Matthew, and then the Apostles themselves. I want to get into specific things about church history even in, in the middle of the series on the apostles. We're going to do things uh, differently uh, at times, but I do want to bring in the YouTube element. But the continuation, if you like the audio, you're more of a podcaster in that way, it's going to continue just as it always has. So don't be concerned about that. But some people like the video version. And so we're going to implement that a little bit more with Explore. Okay. Now, jumping back to our series on the apostles, today we're talking about Matthew, and particularly uh, a little bit of controversy, but again, I don't think there should be a lot of controversy on this one, and that comes from his calling in Matthew chapter number 9 in comparison to Mark chapter 2 verse 14 and Luke chapter 5 verse 27, and the reality is this, we see in Luke and Mark two Gospels calling Matthew Levi. Here, he is not called Levi in Matthew's account. He is called Matthew. Now, a great deal of drama has been created on this controversy. Things from like, well, so-and-so is correcting so-and-so, or somebody clearly didn't know the guy's name. And some have tried to give even theories that Matthew's name is close to the Greek word mathetes, which could be a disciple or a student. And maybe he saw himself as a student of Jesus. Hey, that's even plausible. But the reality is this. Many of the apostles had a dual name. Like, I mean, this isn't hard to understand. Peter actually was given an Aramaic name in addition to his Greek name, Petros. Uh, I mean, when you look at Simon, there were two Simons. So you either are given a description or your name was changed. So yours two James, James the less, James the son of Zebedee, or James the brother of John. Then you have another James come into it. So it was James the just. You have too many Judases. So Judas Iscariot, and then John calls him Judas, not Iscariot. Some believe him to be Thaddeus. 
And then you have Jesus's brother, who is also called Jude or Judas. So you have too many of the same names in this small context of the Palestinian age using the Maccabean family names. And we've talked about that on this program before. There was a shortness of names to really model families after the Maccabeans. And so you start finding in Jesus's own group, a lot of guys with the same name. So the idea that some of them had two different names is not hard to believe. Also, it's unique that Matthew's name is used only in Matthew's gospel for this calling as a tax collector. Now, again, I think many hours have been wasted on this debate. It's not that difficult. Um, when we talk about guys dealing with Matthew, we look at the early writers like Jerome, for example, he states that Matthew, who is also called Levi, from a publican to an apostle, was the first to compose a gospel of Christ in Judea. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of the gospel side of things today. I did two whole programs on Matthew's gospel. Many of you have probably been to a conference or even a teaching opportunity that I've done or classroom setting where I've gone through the gospels or talked about Matthew specifically. You can go back and listen to those, or some of you may be able to recollect those things. We've covered Matthew extensively. I think this is a lot of drama and it's unnecessary drama. The early church saw Levi as Matthew or vice versa. They did not see them as two separate people. There was not a big debate about who they were, or whether or not they were two guys or Mark was correcting something. If you're a Matthew priority or Matthew is correcting Mark, if you're a Mark and priority, that's not the issue that was ever really dealt with. There was no dispute here. One of my biggest positions that I hold to, and I've stated before, that Matthew's name is utilized as an epithet. This is something that he's calling himself within his own gospel. But lest we lie ignorant in this, the other gospel writers recognize Matthew as one of the twelve. In Mark chapter number three in the list, you find Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, again, and then so forth. You don't see this big dispute with whether or not Matthew was one of the 12. Then you go into Luke, Luke 6, Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. And then he repeats it in his writings to Theophilus in his second to, in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 13, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. So there we are. Once again, we see Matthew was used by Luke twice and by Mark in the list of the apostles. So they obviously knew he was one of the 12. And by utilizing the fact that they knew the reality, they were clearly aware of the 12 disciples' names and that Matthew was one of the 12. The question then becomes, is Matthew being dragged out of that list in, Math, in Mark and in Luke and dragged into the story of Levi because Mark and Luke are wrong or, or Mark and Luke have to come behind Matthew and go, all right, Matthew made a horrible mistake here. Uh, he inserted the name Matthew in a story that was actually about some random guy named Levi. And he got it all wrong. So we got to go in and fix it. 
are they fixing each other? Is that what's going on? No, 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 and no. This is all dramatic. It's all unnecessary. This is an epithet. This is a name given to a man who was known as Levi, but clearly saw himself as different once he became a disciple. You see, what the gospel writers in Mark and Luke are doing is they're looking at the man before his conversion. This is not unique to Matthew, by the way. We see this early on in the beginning writings about Peter. Oftentimes, when he is on the scene, you find him as Simon, because originally his name was Simon. It was Jesus who changed it to Rock, Petros, or, or in the Aramaic, Cephas. And when we look at Peter, when we see him on the scene, it's not surprising that he saw himself as Simon the fisherman rather than Peter the apostle because his life changed once Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, let me give you the example of this. Let, let, let me show you what I'm talking about. In Mark's gospel, which is Peter's gospel, it says that Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting the net into the sea. You see what he did there? He called him Simon. He referred to himself as Simon. Before his conversion, before his call, we find that he was not Peter. Jesus changed his name, transformed him. You are Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church in Matthew. But here he's Simon. But notice what happens in the passage. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And as a result of being fishers of men, they were transformed. Their lives were changed. And again, Andrew's name was not changed, but we don't see another Andrew in the group. And not only that, his life is being transformed. He's being set up to be really a leader amongst these leaders. But particularly, there is another Simon that's going to come along. And even when Peter tells his own story about himself, he begins with his name before conversion. Matthew changes this up. Luke and Mark stay consistent with this. They seem to show names of individuals that follow Jesus, what they were known by before they became one of the 12. And that's exactly what's happening. This isn't complex. Now, Matthew chooses to bypass his own identity pre-Jesus. And the reason probably for that is because he is the author of that gospel. He takes a different approach here. Now, remember, Mark is penning Peter's words. We don't know what Peter probably said there. His statements were probably in the first person. And Mark is writing or translating, if you would, a oral tradition to a written tradition. Again, go back and listen to the episode on the making uh, uh, that I did on making Mark's gospel come to reality. How did Mark's gospel become what we have? Go back. I did an entire episode on that as well. But here it is in this text, we see Matthew does not want to look at himself as Levi. 
Maybe it was the oldness of the nature of being a tax collector the way that he was. Perhaps he saw his life for what it was always meant to be. We don't know exactly why, but I think personally, and I've stated this, it is an epithet of himself being included in. Now people say, well, Stephen, for a guy that wrote a gospel about himself, um, it's interesting that he doesn't talk about himself that much. Well, that's right. This is a biography, number one. Number two, I don't think the entirety of the work of Matthew is dedicated to his entire work. You, you've heard me speak about this before. I do not believe Matthew's gospel was a single work of Matthew. I think that his work was corroborated with Peter's gospel with Mark and then other eyewitnesses of Jerusalem together had the gospel of Matthew published in Greek. Again, go back and listen to the episode if you're like, what is he talking about? Go back and listen to the two episodes that did on Matthew and that'll be more clear. But Matthew was called out of the tax collecting table. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collecting table. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, it's not much further after this that Jesus actually calls his disciples out, calls them in. In chapter number 10, he calls the 12. But the tax collector, it, it's kind of ironic. Jesus chose a zealot and a tax collector natural enemies within their own region. Because, I mean, the tax collector, after all, was the most despised person in the Jewish society. I mean, think about this. They collected money from their own blood family, the Jews. They took portions of it for themselves, and the rest, they gave it to Rome. So not only were they perceived as traitors to their own country, but thieves. And you can see an example of this in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. They were seen as thieves and traitors to their own people. And Jesus wanted one of them to follow him. And being the fact that he was a tax collector demonstrates his ability to write. He would have been familiar. And I've been pushed back on this by atheists. And this is just, just again, a belabored point of, of no... I think it's a waste of energy to try to fight this. The tax collector would have been writing tax receipts. He would have been familiar with multiple languages, probably going through the Jews. He would have been familiar with Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek, and perhaps working with Romans for their cause, Latin. So if there's an apostle who had the ability to script and write, it would have been Matthew out of all the others. And it seems interesting to me that when we look at the early attestation of Matthew's gospel, he is known for collecting sayings or teachings of Jesus, the Lagia. And again, Go back and listen to the whole episode I did on this. But it seems like to me that some of the most notorious things that Matthew collected of Jesus were great sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. When we look at these things, they become a very important instrumental uh, text of what Jesus taught 
that circulated in the early church. And we see really a demonstration of this and an exegesis of this and an application of this in the book of James, which I did an entire episode on James, the epistle, and demonstrated throughout it that he was really doing exposition and an application of the Olivet Discourse at the end, but at the very beginning, the Sermon on the Mount. Because that would have been the earliest circulated stories that were continually being used in the church. And they probably were using a Hebrew transmitted text of Jesus' teachings that came from Matthew. And over time, the necessity to get the gospel to the Greek churches from the headquarter churches of Jerusalem, Judea area required taking it from the Hebrew dialect and putting it in Greek. And that's why I believe Matthew was corroborated with Peter's eyewitness testimony amongst his own eyewitness testimony and records. And then other disciples that were still in Jerusalem working together. And I think the lineage part would have came from perhaps James, uh, the brother of Jesus, working together to create this gospel in Greek from the church of Jerusalem to the Greek churches. Therefore, because of its locational distribution coming from Jerusalem churches made it the most widely distributed gospel of the four very early on. And I don't think anybody would dispute that. But if it came from the headquarters mother church of Jerusalem, that would make the most sense because its wide distribution is back from the main place. Just like the church of Jerusalem, all these Gentile leaders, including Paul, uh, who worked with the Gentile churches as a Jew, came to gather in a council to deal with circumcision in Acts 15. That's the main headquarters. And what did they do when they made a decision? They sent out letters to the Greek churches as what to do, not to do, as it relates to circumcision and eating things strangled with blood. So when a church like Jerusalem would publish a gospel, it would be the headquarter gospel and the most known. And that's why we see in the Didache itself, or the Didache, you, you will find Matthew to be the most, almost exclusively, save a few quotes from Luke and one or two from Mark, exclusively quotes from Matthew. And if they are teaching the tradition of the apostles from the Jerusalem area, it would make sense they were using Matthew's gospel. Now, as we relate through this, Matthew becoming a, maybe a scribe, or maybe he would sit down, hear what Jesus said, very collected guy, had a good understanding of data, would, would write these things down over time while with Jesus, and then later publish it. Maybe, maybe. Either way, it appears he would have been the earliest script passed out into the churches before full publication in the Gospel of Matthew we have today. And in this, I believe he gives himself the name here with an epithet to describe himself not of who he was, but of who he is. He did not want to be Levi. Carrying the name Levi is a big deal, too. I mean, you're talking about a Levitical setup. You're talking about going all the way back to the priesthood. It's very possible he was a part of the Levitical priesthood line, chose to be a tax collector instead. 
Perhaps he was embarrassed. Perhaps he didn't like his past and he did not want to be known for who he was, but for who he is. And he inserts his name here to be Matthew, the converted tax collector who followed Jesus. And in the next chapter is one of the 12, which Mark and Luke have no argument with. So that needs to be stated from the get-go. Now, as we talk about the apostle Matthew himself, who's not just a tax collector and a, 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 really a gospel writer, he was also a church planter. He was a church planter. Now, I want to read some of the legendary things we have about Matthew. In the Golden Legend, it states, And by the commandment of St. Matthew, they made a great church of gold and silver that they had brought which in 30 days space was edified and achieved, in which church the apostle sat three and 30 years and converted all of Ethiopia to the faith of Christ. And then King Agapus, with his wife and his daughter and of the people, they were baptized. And then the apostle hallowed to God Ephigenia, the king's daughter, and made her mistress and governess of more than 200 virgins. Now, again, I just want to go ahead and put the disclaimer in here, lest it need uh, to be said again, but I will. We cannot take these as historical facts. They are legends. But within legends, a lot of times, there's perhaps partial truths. To me, what is not disputed is that Matthew eventually went down to Ethiopia. Now, in the reality of Ethiopia, that is found in other texts and other writings. Not just that, but that he was able to convert leaders in that area from the beginning. Now, it didn't end well for him with leaders, but originally it was good. Now, Matthew here was a disciple who often gets depicted as being in Jerusalem, and rightly so. I mean, we have record of this. It's, it's not hard to figure out. I mean, when you're talking about the writings of Irenaeus or whether you're talking about Clement of Alexandria, they all say that Matthew preached the gospel in the area of Judea or in the areas and the regions right there in Jerusalem. And I just talked about how that was a big deal. He was probably publishing the earliest text. But that was just very early on. Over time, he appeared to move out of that area and go to the area of Ethiopia. And, and that's fine. Uh, I, I don't find that hard to believe because we have other record of that. There's really nobody that even disputes that. But he definitely appears to be a part of a movement. And he was not the only one. He didn't go by himself. There was another, and we'll get to him. But there's another that went to that area to the with the gospel and shared the gospel with leaders and the groups of Ethiopia, and the Lord did great things, started a church there. And by the way, I mean, we have tremendous literature from the churches of Ethiopia. I mean, in the especially in the Gies language. I mean, when you talk about the work of the New Testament, the church in Ethiopia does go back very, very early. And we see others try to implement that Matthew for a time was in Jerusalem, but saw the necessity of moving toward Ethiopia, where he began the work of the church. And here in this legend, the golden legend, we find that he spent 33 years in Ethiopia 
teaching, building churches, baptizing, starting uh, works of the gospel there, and good things happen. Now, it didn't end good for him, but nonetheless, good things happen. And then we see another stories here, and I'm going to read from this one. It's called the Acts of Matthew. Again, it's disputed as to how authentic it is, but I will read a few summaries in this section where it talks about Matthew coming to Ethiopia. It says, where King Aglupus reigned, there were two magicians, Zeroius and Arphaxat, who could make men immovable, blind or deaf, as they pleased, and they charmed serpents like the Marcy. Matthew counteracted all their acts, sent the snakes to sleep, and cured their bites with the cross. Now this is, again, kind of makes you scratch your head and go, ah, are you sure that something like that could have happened? Yeah, possibly. But it's interesting that, it again, we see Matthew is in Ethiopia, but it tells us he ran into two, mag two magicians who were putting spells and causing people to go deaf and making people paralyzed, charming snakes and all kinds of things like that. And Matthew was able to counteract these things, but reverse the effects. So unparalyzed to paralyze, give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, cure the snake bites. I mean, he seems to be undoing these magicians' livelihoods, and, and they were obviously not good people. It says a eunuch named Candaces, whom Philip had baptized, took the apostle in, and he did many cures. Candaces asked him how he, a Hebrew, could speak other tongues. Matthew told him the stories of Babel and of Pentecost. One came and announced that the magicians were coming with two crested dragons, breathing fire and brimstone. Matthew crossed himself and rose to meet them. Speaking from the window, said Candaces, you can be at the window, I will go out. When the dragon approached, both fell asleep at Matthew's feet, and he challenged the magicians to rouse them. They could not. Then he adjured them to go quietly and hurt no man, and so they did. The apostle then spoke, describing paradise at length, and the fall, talking about Genesis 3. And it was now announced that Euphoranor, the king's son, was dead. The magicians, who could not raise him, said he had been taken amongst the gods and the image of the temple ought to be built. Candace said, keep these men till Matthew comes. He, Matthew, came and the queen, Euphanisa, fell at his feet. He consoled her and raised Euphranor. The people came to sacrifice to him as a god. He persuaded them to build a church. 11,000 men did it in 30 days and it was called the Resurrection. Matthew presided there 23 years, ordained clergy, founded churches, baptized the king, queen, prince, princess, Ephigenia, who vowed chastity. The magicians, Zorios and Arphax, fled to, the, to a different country. Now, this is interesting. We see a conversion of the family, but in this story, as compared to the golden legend, we find that in the Acts of Matthew, the reason he won favor with the royal family was their son had died. Now, there's some weird things going on here, dragons and all kinds of stuff. But nonetheless, this child died, Euphranor, 
But some other interesting facets here is that the Ethiopian eunuch we see in Luke's record in the book of Acts, where Philip actually was able to bring him and baptize him there after expounding unto him Isaiah's teachings of the Messiah, he went back to Ethiopia. And according to the story, the Ethiopian eunuch, as recorded by Acts, met up with Matthew and Matthew stayed with him. And obviously the eunuch was important to the queen. Her son dies. The magicians can do nothing about it. And, and, and then the Ethiopian eunuch goes, wait a minute, hold up. Don't do anything to his body. Not until Matthew gets here. Matthew shows up. The queen falls at his feet. He comforts her and he walks up to her son, raises her from the dead. The people watch this. They want to make a God out of Matthew. Obviously, he deters that away from it. And he ends up persuading them instead to build a church. And it states that 11,000 men did the work of building a church in 30 days. The name of the church, they called it the resurrection. Now, I'm sure that was an extraordinary thing. But now there is some contradiction here as how long Matthew stayed in the area of Ethiopia. Earlier accounts say 33. This one says 23. So there is some miscalculation by 10 years. Nonetheless, the winning favor with the royal family is of no dispute. And of the reality that he actually did go to Ethiopia is of no dispute. And there he was able to baptize ordain clergy, create and find more churches in the region and have the blessing of the leader to do it. Now, these uh, magicians ended up fleeing somewhere else, which we're going to bring them up in a second. Then there's another writing called the Acts of James the Less, and we'll get to James the Less at some point. Now, my son requested I do James the brother of John next. So, James, keep your eyes and ears open for that one. Uh, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, will be our next one at the request of my son. Told him today I would do that. But we'll also get to James the less. But there's a story legend about him called the Acts of James, where it says Simon and Jude going to Persia found there two magicians, Zorios and Ephrax, whom Matthew had driven out of Ethiopia. Oh, there they are again. Their doctrines were that God of the Old Testament was the God of darkness. Moses and the prophets, deceivers, the soul, the work of the good God, the body, the work of the God of darkness, so that the soul and the body are contrary to one another. The sun and the moon were gods, and the water was a God. And the incarnation of Christ was simply an appearance only. Sounds like a Gnostic view mixed with a bunch of ancient cults. Nonetheless... We find that these two magicians made their way out of Ethiopia and to Persia. And boy, they just cannot get away from the apostles. They ran into Simon the Zealot and Judas. <laughs> and so one of the things that I find ironic here is these correlated of legends is that these men are named the same, and there's a reminder that Matthew had driven these men out, and they try to start their business somewhere else, and it just seems like everywhere they go, they're running one of the apostles, and they go out of business again. Uh, after a while, you think they'd retire, find a new trade, 
But nonetheless, they're persistent. But here in the Acts of James, we find their doctrine. Not just that they were doing some snake enchantments and weird paralyzings and blindness and deafness to people, but actually they had a doctrine. They had a view of God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, that he was a God of darkness and that Moses and the prophets were liars. So they actually had a working theology against the doctrine of God of the Old Testament and the New. Now, later on, let's keep following this with Matthew. In the Acts and Martyrdom of Matthew, which is about 3rd century when it was written, Matthew, on the request of Jesus, appeared to him in the form of an angelical child. He was sent to Ethiopia to spread his word among pagan tribes, where he founded a church and built a temple in the city of Myrnina with his disciple Platon. One day, Jesus appears to him and gives him a staff, commanding him to plant it at the door of the church and say that a tree would grow from this staff and it would bear fruit. From its root would flow a stream of water. Those who uh, bathe in it will become gentle in their ways. When Matthew carries the staff toward the church, he is met by the wife and son of the ruler of the land, Fulvian, who are both afflicted by demonic spirits. By demonic spirits. He heals them converts a number of the locals who witnessed the event. However, the ruler, Fulvian, does not want the subjects to become Christians, ceases worshiping or cease to worship the pagan gods. He accuses the apostle of using sorcery and gives orders to kill him. Matthew is then seized, burnt upside down, then his body was submerged into the sea. The ruler then repents and received baptism from Platon, who gave him the name Fulvian Matthew after the death of Platon. The apostle Matthew appears to Fulvian in a vision and tells him to become the head of the Ethiopian church and to continue his work. Another version of the story tells a more interesting ending uh, where Fulvian, after his wife had determined to live the rest of her life in celibacy as a result of the apostle healing her, that being Matthew, dispatched a swordsman to murder Matthew. The executioner came behind Matthew as he stood at the altar with his hands raised to heaven in prayer and drove a sword into his back. Fulvian does not repent for his involvement in Matthew's death. In his death. Now, uh, we don't know. We don't know. Um, we do have good reason to believe, amongst other things, he was martyred. Uh, he was killed. Whether he was burned upside down, thrown in the sea, uh, or stabbed in the back while he was in the middle of prayer, we don't really know. It's interesting that one theory in his martyrdom story of the third century is that he actually died. His disciple worked to get re restore the man who had him killed. I don't know how to really, which one of these to really embrace. I don't think Matthew reappeared to anybody in a vision. I just, I, I have a hard time believing that. If he's dead, he's dead. Perhaps he had a hallucination and thought he was talking to Matthew. That's possible. People have hallucinations all the time. But Fulvian, in the one narrative, ends up 
coming back and repenting, gets baptized by Matthew's disciple, Platon. And then Fulvian starts a church, becomes the head of the Ethiopian church, continues Matthew's work, even though he was his killer. Then you have this other story where it's not even close. Uh, Fulvian's wife ends up having him killed and Fulvian does not repent of having anything done to Matthew. To me, it gets a little bit bizarre. But we have reason to believe that he was martyred in Ethiopia, one way or another. And this is, again, a third century, um, really, legend about Matthew. Ethiopia is rich in its church history. It goes back. Somebody brought the gospel there. They have memorials. They have uh, holy days set aside for Matthew. I mean, when you're talking about the Apostle Matthew, he was always seen as a patron saint of, uh, of the area of Ethiopia. He was heralded for his work in the gospel writing when he was still in Jerusalem, Judea area. But he became a, an inspiration that no matter what, no matter even if you're facing obstacle and death, to be persistent and train others. He had a disciple with him. He wanted to see churches built. He didn't receive glory from himself, even after he raised someone from the dead. He didn't want the glory for himself. It's an amazing thing as we go through the Gospels and we see men like Matthew, who is Levi, the tax collector, robbing people, selfish game, traitor. How transformed he became as a gospel writer who became so selfless, writing the narrative and the story of Jesus to publish a work of what he said and what he did so that the world could know the man that changed his life from a tax collector to an apostle. And that after he accomplished his work there, he would move toward Ethiopia in the midst of danger and ridicule, combating magicians, superstitions, and gods of the world that were worshipped in Ethiopia. He came full force with integrity and strength, combating these errors. And, and while doing it in the power of Jesus, took no glory for himself, only to seek that churches would be started, people would believe the truth, and that in that place, Christ, who he walked with, talked with, recorded and reported, seen with his own eyes, touched with his own hand, embraced with his own arms, felt after the resurrection, saw him ascend into heaven, saw it needful enough to not live comfortably, 
But to go to a people who are void of any knowledge of God outside of the Ethiopian eunuch, who apparently had a great influence even as a Christian, who welcomed Matthew, welcomed him, and supported him. God had already paved the way for Matthew to make it to Ethiopia by saving a man that Philip shared the gospel with, who was obedient to the call to leave Samaria to go out into a desert and find a man reading an Isaiah scroll. And he took that back with him. You see, the magicians had a view of the God of the Old Testament. There was obviously conversations in Ethiopia. Where did the magicians get a theology that the God of, of Moses and the prophets was evil? Perhaps. The Ethiopian eunuch had engaged conversation with them and they did not like the God of the Old Testament. Nor did they accept the witness of the Messiah as the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. But it is a beautiful thing to see how God, even in the book of Acts, paved the way to Ethiopia and would later send one of his disciples to begin the process of working the church. And to this day, the churches are so rich in that area with truth and gospel. Tracing itself back to the work of Matthew. And so again, we see another one of the 12 where God did an extraordinary thing. Took a man of great error who is rich and comfortable and even howls the rest of the disciples. And Jesus was banqueting in Matthew's house because he was probably very wealthy. Put it all aside. Removed any, any of that life's behind him. The Levi light, the Levi type of living, that life. Put it behind him. Became diligent persistent and working hard to find where he could implement what Jesus did in places that needed to know. And he chose Ethiopia by the power of the spirit. This is Matthew, a great character, a great gospel writer. We owe a lot to him. And uh, he was one of the least talked about in, in, really lied of the picture, but we're going to see there's less in the New Testament. But we do have some good history on Matthew, though there's only a few stories about him in the Gospels. We do have some good history on him as we went through. Some controversial about how many years he was there, 23, 33, we don't know. And if that was the case, if he spent 15 to 20 years in Jerusalem, Judea, what years did he die? I mean, there's a lot of dispute about that as well. Well, some say that he would have died sometime after 70 AD, which is very plausible in my opinion. Uh, I personally believe you're talking about a guy who probably died in the 80s, maybe 90s at uh, the worst. I don't think he died any earlier than 70. But he apparently lived a little bit longer of a life, spent many years in Ethiopia, Ethiopia and then eventually lost his life for that cause. His feast days are celebrated in different areas, uh, different churches acknowledge him. Um, he was seen in September uh, by most of Western Christianity 
uh, October, the Coptic churches hold them into October and Eastern churches in November. Uh, again, different feast days fall in different calendars, depending on which church you're referring to. But I mean, Roman Catholicism, obviously, Lutheran, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican churches all recognize Matthew. Again, his feast days are typically in the fall. I mean, you might see it around September, October, November in that area, depending on which group of churches you're looking at. So this is the Apostle Matthew. Hopefully you learned something. Uh, hopefully uh, you were able to be encouraged by it. Uh, you know, embrace the Gospel of Matthew and, and see what God did through a former tax collector and use him for the great work that we see and get to benefit from today. Well, once again, this was another episode of The Apostles. We're going to keep continuing in them. Also, keep your eyes open for some bonus episodes that may be combined in with the live stream on Explore Christianity. Thanks again for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.